Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Left Page. Hey, how are you guys doing? This one is is actually one that Bruno kind of pushed me to do. Uh, <laughs> it's a simple, short, I wouldn't say simple, but it's yeah. just a short story. <laughs> yeah. It's and... a short, short story, but it's really condensed and yeah. Good lord. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah, I, I'm not sure we have anything sort of administrative to say beforehand. So be- before we get into the depth or and the darkness of the short story, anything you want to say? Anything light? Anything positive? How's your week going? How yeah, things- uh, I don't know. My week is going well. Tomorrow we'll have a, a big protest here in Sao Paulo about the the recent cuts. I don't know if it's, it's yeah, called the, like that in English. but Yeah, the- cutting the education budget for the majority of... Well, education in general, but especially the federal universities, the public ones. Yeah, and especially the human sciences. Exactly. uh, Because, as you guys might know or might not know, the new minister of education here in Brazil said that we need to invest more money in areas that give money back. So they are cutting money from the areas of history, um, philosophy, sociology. philosophy, sociology, in my case as well, in my case in Frank, history and, and letters, um, languages and linguistics, yeah, languages, linguistics. <laughs> the whole the whole package of uh, neo-fascist <laughs> type of government, because they just want the people dumber and dumber and more technical jobs, more money more consumism in Mm -hmm. in many ways that's not light but that's (laughs) what is motivating me to study more to go to the protests and yeah i think that's our that that is kind of my focus my mental focus today and and this week and this past months or so yeah i think that's that's also worth mentioning the date, which will be, I'm not sure the episode will go out today or tomorrow, yeah. that'll be May 15th, yeah. uh, a national day for the struggle for education. Yeah. So there are going to be protests all around the country and talking, demonstrating about that and how education is essential and <laughs> no matter <laughs> what obvious. this government says. The obvious that it, it isn't obvious for our Dear, dear President <laughs> Bolsonaro. Well, a certain type of education, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I think... Yeah, I've, I've, been go, I've been doing well, been preparing for a collab with Coffee with Comrades yeah. on The Dispossessed, which will be soon enough. Yeah. And, oh, that that's... Just wait for it. It's going to be so amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can hardly wait. But yeah, I think that that's that's good for now. Yeah. Then let's get on to our actual work. Bruno, would you care to do the reveal? I will go on with... Uh, I don't know the name in English, uh, I found actually. It as this is Mikhail Bulgakov's The Red Crown. The Red Crown, Which yeah. is a short story from, from what I've seen, 1922. Yeah. Not exactly sure which month. But suffice it to say that it's... In the context or the historical context of the Russian Civil War, yeah, which ran from about 1917, if you want to go there, but possibly 1919 to 1922. Yeah, so it's definitely related to that epoch. Yeah, so a little biography of Bulgakov. He was born May 3rd, 1891, and he died 10 March 1940. So he was a medic, and he actually was a medic in three really important and symbolical wars. The First World War, the Russian Revolution in 1917, and the Russian Civil War. He actually was badly hurt both in the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he... He was hurt by shrapnel from a grenade in his his abdomen, and he actually started to take morphine because of the excruciating pain that he he felt, and he actually got addicted to morphine, and he actually has a book called Morphine about his, his whole addiction and how he... And it's really symbolical as well because... 
he stopped taking morphine after he started to write. After he renounced his, his job as a medic and called himself a writer, a hmm. professional writer. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, I for one, didn't know much about him, hadn't read him before. Yeah. But this this is definitely an interesting experience. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh, sorry. Go, go on, on. Go on. No, go on. And so he he started to write, and they were in the ambience of the socialist real, realism. And he actually talked to Stalin lots of times on on the telephone, and Stalin actually censored a lot of his plays and and short stories and novels, but he actually loved one of, of Bulgakov's novels. And it is, I think that the figure of Bulgakov, and I will start by that, it's the type of person who, I, I always say that there are people that are so critic that even if the government or the philosophy or anything that they believe would be victorious or installed in in their country accepted or elected i don't mm -hmm. know a party election anything those terms there are people that are so critical that they would even die or be censored or don't like the regime that they believed in mm -hmm. the regime that they that they wanted to to be in power yeah that and and, and i think that's actually a really good thing because Bulgakov is really acid on his critics and he's always really ironic as well. And yeah, I think that we we need to appreciate those kinds of things, those kinds of writers because it's a sense of learning. It's when you learn about his life and you read his literature, it's really... It's really a, a self-critic movement mm -hmm. because he, he is actually talking about the things that the socialist regime could do better. Mm -hmm. The things that we were talking earlier, me and Frank, about the whole idea of using literature or using arts as a way, a mean to brandify the government. But the problem about this is that when you do this, when you force someone to do such a thing, it becomes propaganda and mm -hmm. it isn't art in a normal state anymore. And yeah, I think that the service that the writers and literature can do for any country in any ideology is to be critic and mm -hmm. not to be fully supportive and mm -hmm. oh my god it's the best it's the best kind of government the best kind of ideology it's the best kind of philosophy we can learn from the critical look and the critical regard of the of writers to become a better society become a better government become better people mm -hmm. so yeah that's a just a, a first remark that i i wanted to make yeah that's an incredibly relevant point because in that regard we take into consideration how much, well, the general relationship between art, the artist, whatever means of art they may be, and like a regime in general. Yeah. And when you think about these relationships, it's, it's strange to consider like, okay, so certain books and certain works were censored, others were published, others were encouraged. Yeah. And it's the ways a regime engages with its critics. And these critics, especially Bogokov, from what you've told me, it's not like he was criticizing because he was opposed. In one aspect or another, maybe he was. But he was criticizing because he cared, because yeah. he was pushing it to be better. Yeah, exactly. And questioning those aspects isn't opposing or demonizing the whole. It's about, okay, there are these problems and using this literature to engage with it and to make its literature as a project, as a project to push the world to be better. Yeah. Like, there's... Uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard a couple times before in a few classes, but Aristotle's definition and comparison between history and poetics, poetry, in poetics, I think, that's the name in English, where he says that history is, is telling about how things happened 
and poetry is about telling how things could have happened. Yeah. I, I think that's about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's in, in that sense poetry is much better than history. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and poetry to fiction as a whole, of course. But <laughs> it's very much pushing these boundaries. Like yeah. to think of fiction, to think of art as pu- being able to push these boundaries. Of course not all works will do that. Yeah. But to understand and recognize that possibility is to understand that censorship like that of various works that you don't criticize is not well it's the regime refusing to change yeah and that is it's an interesting question it may come up later when we end up talking about the dispossessed because that happens here and there this relationship between creation creating and society in yeah. a general sense and in this case, I, I think the same happens in a way, because these people believed in the Soviet Union. They believed in it, and they wanted it to be better. And even with excesses, even with problems, even with censorship, they persevered. And it's not because they they lacked any sort of criticism, or they were fully a part of it, or they were just propaganda. No. It's about having this... It's the critical posture, yeah. which we try to keep as well as academics, as making these this podcast, as human beings, exactly. as yeah. human beings in the world, as <laughs> political entities or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's about maintaining this position, this attitude. It's about more than just... And of course, any good structured methods are important. The methodology is fundamental. But... The general critical posture, that critical attitude and look and way of acting, well, yeah, that is that is also essential. The, the critical being, exactly. Yes. It's it's beyond the method, yeah, and it's it goes where the method cannot. Exactly, uh, <laughs> and I think that's something to think about in this regard. It's how. how did uh, Bulgakov's writing in the in when looking at him, for example, how did they relate to his time, and what was his view, and why did it come into conflict with Stalin's or the Soviet Union's posture in general, and in what ways did that occur? How did that go bad? How did that go in a less tumultuous area as well? It's about understanding these various relations. And also considering that while these actions have been, especially censoring and various works and such have been incredibly negative, is to understand, and I'm not saying uh, critically, of course it needs to be done critically, and why was that posture limited? Why was censoring those works a problematic posture to take? It's understand, okay, this was done for this reason, and why was this a problem? Of course, you can take it in the direction that, okay, the regime was trying to protect itself and it was shielding itself. What's the word? Making itself bulletproof. But in that regard, it, it, it doesn't change. It becomes solid. It yeah. becomes stagnant. Yeah. And it's understanding and, and, these various paths and nuances that we can able to interpret not just the Soviet Union, but in this this relationship of the Soviet Union with its artists, with its art yeah. form. And this, even before going into the discussion of Soviet realism. Yeah. But... I'll stop here for now, <laughs> uh, just so I don't go too much don't in, bother, the, in this bother. sense. Yeah. But yeah, I think these are all things to consider when thinking of art. Art, critical art, isn't always purely negative. Yeah, and it can at times be incredibly positive while being utterly destructive. Yeah, in in this regard, and absolutely mm-hmm. polemic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think as a as a student of linguistics and literature, it's really I won't be pretentious to say that I know this, but I tend to believe that the biggest error of the, the of the Soviet Party and the the Soviet Union was just this was the the solidification of the party mm-hmm. because as we know the Soviet Party the the socialists and and that would be communists if everything went well. <laughs> There's a liquidity and a movement to to language and to the people. So if you have a party that needs to represent the people, you can't have anything that's bulletproof. Mm-hmm. And that's the, as you said, that's the critical error of, of such a thing as bulletproofing a, a party. Because 
then you will not know it's it's the same problem as we talk about in in linguistics as making a grammar book of anything because you are solid you are making a solid state of the of the language and literally at the moment you print a grammar book it is already outdated not, yeah it is already outdated so when you have a party that represents the people of a country and as we know the russian people who care so much about their land and their culture when when you solidify this you are you are asking to to be to be destructive and to to not go well it, it isn't at the moment that the party wanted to solidify and and but it proved itself it was it was the the beginning of the end because there's no such thing as treating the people and the language and art as something that can't change mm -hmm. that's the the whole premise of different types of styles of art of perspectives of aesthetics and yeah that's it's just this is the the whole as Bulgakov we are being at first critical about <laughs> about the things that we could do better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's especially considering how this process of change. Yeah. It's understanding that okay, at times we need to strengthen ourselves, we need to protect ourselves. And when you think about the time of the civil war, that is particularly uh, a pressing matter. Yeah. But even beyond that, and you can of course you can interpret it considering the whole motif of the cold war and that general conflict but still to to stagnate in this sense to refuse this change it is a pathway to problems and to damages because change especially when you consider a revolutionary process as as was the, the russian revolution and as is the well the the whole ideas of communism and socialism it is change yeah and it, it is different it is complicated it is problematic but it is change and to at times refuse to acknowledge that or refuse to follow through with those changes it, it can be utterly destructive i agree anything else you want to say no no okay so <laughs> let's get to the short story <laughs> As always, we tend to talk a, a bit much, <laughs> a little much. Eh, it's par for the course now. Yeah, yeah. They're used to it. This is episode six, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay, I have no intention of giving a, a brief overview of the short story, because I'm, because I'm not sure that can be done. Yeah. But, suffice it to say, the Red Crown is a particularly macabre yeah. tale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, regarding war yeah if you will and madness and madness bruno go for it i can see so, you're excited yeah <laughs> so I, I i only have a bit of a remark because i don't want to i actually don't want to spoil anything about the short story because he's it is so short that i think that anyone that listens to to our podcast should go it's, it's like nine pages ten pages something like that yeah and i think that the it isn't even productive to talk about the story as a chronological story about mm -hmm. the the aspects the the proper aspects of the characteristics of the story and the the narrative but i think that the most productive part is talking about the themes the mm -hmm. the the things that give energy to to this short story and i would say that we should start talking about the war okay so, and this will be a spoiler alert, like, if you want to go and read it, it's fairly short, it's yeah. very interesting, very strange, but, well, okay, let's go. The Red Crown. Yeah. The image, like, you can imagine, oh, a red crown, okay, just a crown, red, okay, yeah. or you can imagine blood and that stuff, it's a possible image. What is the Red Crown in this story? It is shrapnel. <laughs> from i don't know artillery probably that was embedded into the protagonist which is the narrator the younger brother's head yeah resembling this sort of crown this bloody crown and 
framed by his his eyes that basically blots of blood. Yeah. Yeah, dripping from his face. So it's a very, it's a horrific image. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's incredibly dark. Yeah. And it it's an image that becomes embedded into the narrator's mind, head, yeah. psyche. <laughs> it it drives him insane. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And okay, so we have this the result of war. Yeah. What is very interesting is that there is no mention of war in the yeah, actual. Yeah. There's no. There's no. Story. There's no action. Yeah. There's no. Com- there's no actual conflict. Yeah. As in the military conflict. There's yeah. no mention of actual combatants. Like you have the soldiers and the general, but the actual they conflict, are, yeah, the violence. Are, they are just marching towards something, and it's just. <clears throat> it's even funny because it's a, a whole sense of in my perspective when i read the part about the the general and the soldiers it, it gave me a bit of sense of order and in a sense of oh his brother is he's he's safe he's going with a whole crew going with the soldiers yeah. towards something and i i, I honestly thought that it, he was i don't know going back to the headquarters and yeah. he was safe <laughs> And so, taking this example, I, I will talk about the other team, which is, and briefly, because there's a lot to talk about in each team, but the madness. So, uh, our narrator, and our, and we don't know his name as well, he he is cursed by this image mm. of always seeing his brother mounting a horse and with the soldier outfit and he's going towards something and and as as frank said earlier there's no action there's no war and actually so the spoilers will go on (laughs) so he actually the narrator asks him if he if he wants to to talk a bit to go back to his home to to talk to their mother Mm -hmm. and he says no i can't i need to go with with my crew i need to go with my general. I'll be back in an hour. Yeah, I'll be back in an hour. And so the episode happens and he comes back with a, a, another soldier. I think that it was a party of 40 and there mm-hmm. are two. Yeah. Uh, o- only two that come back. And the the brother's name, Kolya. Kolya comes back to our narrator and he is in this state of... he He's basically, and I was saying earlier... He's the complete antithesis of the figure of the knight. Mm-hmm. He's a ruined knight. He's a hollow knight. He's completely destroyed. He's just a symbolical void. Yeah. Because he has a crown that is a red crown, which would make him a king mounting a horse. Mm-hmm. But he's actually just a dead soldier. Yeah. And he's blind as well. Mm-hmm. So the motives there and the the symbology of a blind man mounting a horse and mm-hmm. a almost dead man mounting a horse and someone with a crown on a horse, yeah, it's man, it's it's really you you can read this this short story in so many ways. It's it's unbelievable and actually has a a whole intended I don't know a, a craziness a, not a it's like a flow of conscience, mm-hmm. but a flow of conscience of a madman. Yeah. So you you tend to, you actually, and we were talking earlier that we thought that uh, Dostoevsky wa- was mad, but oh my god, here it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, like we, we read Dostoevsky's novel, it's like, okay, there's this issue about madness that comes up fairly recurrently. Yeah. Okay, that, that's fine. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here it's because in Dostoevsky's work, it's it's really about the social man, about the madness linked to the public repartitions, the the bureaucracy, all of those things. And here, as we were talking earlier, it's a criticism about not the war, but about what happens after the war and what is war in its essence. Because war is not about the battlefield is about the ones who live after the battlefield. Yeah, it's about devastation. It's about madness. It's about yeah. this violence. It's about trauma. It's an incredibly harsh depiction of trauma. Yeah. Because like, the story has this sort of circular manner. It starts with the narrator 
telling us that he's in this room, uh, whatever that may be. Yeah. And he's sort of remembering this story, but not really. It's a very strange way that it's written. And it really highlights this madness in yeah. this case. And at the very end, we end with him in his room of what is implied to be the sort of sanitarium and whatnot. Yeah. And he's talking about he he was moved out of his room, but he's, he's in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the, the, what happens to him is that after that moment, he recurrently almost every night and at the end of the short story every night, he sees that figure of his brother coming up to him and saying, giving him a continent saying, brother, I can't leave the troop. Yeah. And it, it's strange. It's almost like he's part of this sort of ghost troop. Because it's not also said whether the brother lived or died or... Well, we imagine because the extent of the damage and the very graphic aspect of it that he's dead. Yeah. But he could be alive. We don't know. At the start of the short story, we don't know. Yeah. At the end, it becomes very clear. And the way that madness, the vision of his brother, the horror of seeing him again and again in the same way. Yeah. Like the brother doesn't scare him, doesn't haunt him. It, but it comes to him. It torments him. It's yeah. It's this violence after yeah, it, the war. It, it, it's it, it's it's really powerful because it's just a constatation of reality. Yeah. It's not about being haunted, being tormented by something that is supernatural or any kind of forces of the natural. Any kind of it, it, it's just a story about constating the reality of war. Haunted by reality. Exactly. That is yeah. what I, that's the red crown. Yeah. The red exactly. crown crown is is this sort of supernatural aspect of reality. Yeah. Because it's like, oh you think of a crown, you think of something majestic, something powerful. And this is the very opposite. Yeah. It's the absolute violence, it's the absolute damage, it's horror. Yeah. And it's it's an inversion in that sense. Yeah. Uh, as you said, the imagery of the night. It's it, less of the sh knight in shining armor, valiantly with a crown. No, yeah. it's he comes back alone yeah. without a horse, and now he has the crown. The crown yeah. is is the nightmare, yeah. if you will, and the recurrence of it that ends up driving the the narrator insane. Yeah, he says that he will try to kill himself. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's incredibly somber and dark. Yeah. Because you have this real sense of, like, he's... There's nothing he can do. Yeah. Like, the, the horror is there. The horror happened. And yeah, that's it. Happened. it. That's yeah. it. There's little else. He sees it again and again. To the point that he's like, there's no point anymore. Yeah. It simply cannot be unseen. That, that's the, the whole mm -hmm. premise of it. And that's the whole looking to war. But not only war, but I don't know... Because Bulgakov, he lived war, and that's really... I think that's a, a really interesting parallel about experiences that give us things that we cannot go back mm -hmm. anymore. Because, for example, in a past episode, I talked about the the shootings in... Uh, okay. It was New Zealand, yeah. And it's that sort of thing, like, I think that the, the human experience... It's always based on things that uh, I tend to joke around with a friend that there are such things in the world that pushes it enlarges our brains in a way that it's even if it's good or bad, it's always a painful process, yeah, because it's always a process of not being able to go back mm -hmm. and uh, talking about a movie that most people hate <laughs> and i i I find it interesting because i i saw it when i was i don't know 14 but the last indiana jones <laughs> the, like the the whole film is just bananas but <laughs> it is a pretty simple metaphor about someone looking through into knowledge and not being able to take it mm -hmm. and i think that here it is like that but us as well with internet, with images, with with I don't know I, I'm not a specialist, but with deep web, with with the facility to to be mentally enlarged in a bad way. Mm -hmm. it, it's really 
it's really also about preservation of your mind and what we see here in this short story is just a story about what state you can experience if those things happen to you if, if you don't have a, a, a sort of a filter because in the psychological aspect of it when we see images like uh, like i mean there's no <laughs> there's no such thing as seeing your dead brother with shrapnel on his head but as we see more and more gore and violence and things that we and it's bizarre because there are people that actually like to see that mm-hmm. but uh, i i think that the you know the taste for it it's something that plays around the notion of being a human being mm-hmm. because it's just so powerful and it's just so it has a capacity of traumatizing that uh, as we know uh, uh, psychologists people that work in the police those people are demanded to go to psychiatry to be open about what they feel because at a certain moment those kinds of feelings and those kinds of experiences and images and gore and all those things they will bite you in the ass. <laughs> they they'll will break you down. Yeah, they will break you down and you will not notice till you become someone as mad as the narrator of this short story. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's almost a break in the story when he's selling it. Because he goes, oh, I'll be back in an hour because I have to go with the troop. Okay. It's like, it's a routine. It's something absolutely expected. It's okay. He's volunteering for the army or whatever. Yeah. So he'll be back soon. Fine. But he doesn't. He doesn't come back in the same way. Quite far, far, far from it. He's damaged. He's this indescribable harm that he suffers. And that one image is sufficient to... That his brother cannot take it. Yeah. Like, he, he, his loss of his sanity, of his well-being, of everything, is this single event, is this one image... And in that way, how to think of just a single, brutal, powerful image that is able to destroy someone like this. Yeah, it it is really interesting because as we were talking about Aristotle earlier, this short story is the definition of a tragedy Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have any aspects of the Aristotelian tragedy. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's really interesting because... Yeah, and I, I don't need even to talk about the, the geniosity of, of Russian writers, of the, the whole realist movement. But yeah, I think that's that's the most, and, and as we were talking about earlier, about art being expressed in many ways. Yeah, Aristotle is not wrong, but he he's also not always right. Exactly. And we see here in, in a, a man who was just a medic and lived his traumas and his complicated life and he was just trying to signify and putting words such a thing as as what you what you feel after after trauma and i think that's a really important work because in our in our general society here in brazil it's it's really common to I don't know, five, seven years ago, people people were afraid of going to the take any kind of psychological care mm-hmm. because it was a kind of a Freudian fear of as you admit that you need psychological care, then you are a crazy person or a mm-hmm. madman, and the reverberations of this in your own mind and in society as oh i need to go to the psychiatrist and it's really shocking and it is really a punch in the stomach because i when i was a a younger kid i always felt the same kind of emotion of oh god if i come to the and i remember really vividly about the time that the only time that i went to the psychologist it was really a mental hustle of why am I going there and what does this mean? What does this mean in a 
personality level, in a mental level, in a health level. And I was doing the worst thing that I could do because we need to accept our fragility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the whole image of the red crown is about this because the shrapnel embedded in his head it is a symbol of both brutal death and also about dying in the sense of making something not dying but how can i say it infecting something as his mind Mm-hmm. And the the so the the red crown is is a perfect it's a perfect metaphor and a perfect symbology of it because it is at the same time the the brutal aspect of a death and about a fatality and and about war, but at the same time is about infecting and showing that anything that is shocking can be embedded in your head and change your your mind and your wellness and your health forever mm-hmm. and yeah it is, it is not that's the motive why it's called the red round there's this aspect of trying to accept that we are not as powerful as we think we are yeah. we are actually really fragile and, and really easy to be killed mm-hmm. it's interesting to consider especially because the red crown and that violence is not something that happens in an individual level, especially when we think about war in general sense, but also to consider that Kolya, the, the younger brother, he's not the only one affected by this violence, yeah. even though he's the one who wears the red crown, if yeah. he, one can wear it. But also his brother, his older brother, the narrative is affected, the mother, those around him, the troop, it's it's something to think that the horror of war is something that comes not only to those that fight it, but to everyone, really. Yeah. To all around it. And to think of war as this totalizing aspect. Yeah. To think of it as affecting all in different ways. Not everyone's affected by it materially. Sometimes your home isn't bombed. Sometimes your family or yourself don't go to fight. But to those that do, your relation to them on a cultural and a societal and personal basis, it is something to think about. And I don't think Bogokov goes that far, but definitely on the personal, how war affects all of those near and around you. Yeah. It's not the story of Kolya. I think that's the general sense. Yeah. If it was, it would be an entirely different story. Yeah. It's the story of Kolya's older brother. He yeah. who sees, not he who lives. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, in that sense, I think it's this story of this other type of trauma. It's not the trauma of living the experience, but... Living with the experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. It's difficult to describe. Yeah. But it's exactly that. It's exactly, I have not been through this, but those around me have. And how can I deal with that, me still being here? Yeah. And in that sense, like, like the narrator can't go on. Yeah. He acknowledges again and again that he will commit suicide. And yeah. there's not even a doubt in his mind. He can't take it. Yeah. Others may not let him, but he knows he will and he needs to. Yeah. In... <laughs> That's why... It's harsh. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's why... That's why this this short story is incredibly moving because of it. Because it really does show the horrors of war that sometimes are not that of direct combat. Yeah. Of course that is brutal and changing, of course. But it, it, it tries to describe that which is immaterial. Yeah. That which is psychological, emotional, social even. Yeah. Because the narrator isolates himself from society. Yeah. There's like he, he sees a, the general and someone else. But this... A general and a professor. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yes. Thank you. But this figure of death. And especially... It's something we haven't mentioned. But he sees a, a man hanged. On a lamppost, yeah. a soldier, a deserter, it's never clear. He Like, he was a soldier, but why, it's uncertain. Yeah, I think he was a Bolshevik, something like that. Yeah, like, he was an older Bolshevik, a traitor Bolshevik yeah. or something. Yeah, And 
this image of death, of death of those around you, of the violence to those around you, and how that affects you deeply. How when he sees the red crown in his brother, he can't take it. He yeah. breaks down in yeah. all aspects of the word, socially, psychologically. He he can't take it. He can't take it yeah. at all. Yeah, and that's what makes this short story so powerful. Yeah, because it, it's very much how to deal with this trauma, and of course it pushes us to think of like. When you live through that trauma, the first one, when you actually suffer it in your flesh, how do you live with it? And how those around you live with it as well, having been also victims of this violence. And that's why I think this this is very strange, because it's not positive about war. It's not something, especially after the Civil War, or at its very ending stages, it doesn't glorify war. Yeah. It it also doesn't say that it's oh no war this hard no it simply shows it yeah it doesn't say it and at aspects it doesn't need to say it yeah it it doesn't complain or it doesn't say that war should not happen or the wars that he lived through shouldn't have happened yeah but it's it deals with yeah it's a it's a constatation yeah this is war and exactly it's simply it's simple it's, as that simple yeah. as that yeah. This might be a slightly shorter episode. I don't know. I'm just sort of... I still haven't fully taken the short story yeah. in yet. It's, yeah. Cause it's hard to swallow. The Red Crown doesn't go easy. Yeah. And I j just a little less remark. I think that it was really interesting because you, you used the in, uh, as you said, about the Red Crown. Mm -hmm. And it's really in his head and not on his head of oh, Colia. Yes. Yeah, and exactly this because mm -hmm. the crown, even as a, a gesture of putting it on, is is always about superficiality. It's always about something that means other things. So you put a crown on, and it's on your head, not in your head, because it's about power and it is about where the psychological meaning of power is trusted, it's concentrated. But when you have the image of a crown being shrapnel, you have a duality of putting something on and having something in. And that's mm. really the aspect of, exactly as you said, of the social importance of the crown being on, but the psychological catastrophe of the crown being in <laughs> yeah it's <sighs> yeah I, I i i i like i could say more of course but i i'm still swallowing it yeah all because it's it's it, it, it is as i said it's macabre yeah and in that regard it's how do we deal with the red crown yeah because exactly. it's almost like because the red crown is something that ends up happening yeah and how do we handle it yeah being wearing it or seeing it yeah and i think even in in our modernity because as a a little short story in the short story the whole episode of him going to war and coming back basically dead we are actually <laughs> as talking about as in 2019 we see the mention of death everywhere mm -hmm. i was coming back today from from the university and there are literal signs in the road where it's written literally motorcyclists go back home alive. Yeah. And <laughs> because here, especially in Sao Paulo, I think that two motorcyclists die every day here. Yeah, I think it's, it's one to two, something yeah, like that. Something but it's like insane. That. It's, in, it's insane. And, and that it's another traumatizing constatation about any time you make any as a soldier going to war or as a worker going to work you can leave the experience of the crown you can actually die you can actually be destroyed by and war carries this sense of progress mm -hmm. and we as a, a modern society in sao paulo which is a really rich city and in sort of a technological mm -hmm. between lots of, <laughs> quotation of, of, marks. of quotation marks but actually it's really interesting to see because we are actually living 
the good part of, of progress, mm -hmm. but there's always the possibility of that trap, you know, hitting you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's really macabre because it's the reality of facing those kinds of episodes, facing the idea that no one is special. It mm -hmm. can happen to anyone. Yeah. As war can happen to anyone, as a bomb can hit anyone's house. But we as people, uh, we as a country, for example, here in Brazil, we as any person in the world, we can be destroyed in this way. And, and there's really no escape. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> so, a grim way to put it. <laughs> because, yeah, that's the whole idea of a, a fatality. It happened to Kalia and makes us think, it makes us, it makes us being more humble mm -hmm. about not thinking of ourselves as something that it's really invincible and for, and I don't know, we, me and Frank, we are in, in good health, we have a perfect state <laughs> of, we live in good houses, we eat every day, but even we can be can be chosen by the shrapnel by the the yeah. red, by the red crown and that's the humbleness of this short story as well the kind of sense that we need to know that we are all equal but we are also equal in, in the in a kind of how can i say it we are all fragile and we mm -hmm. are we we can be powerful as individuals and as a as a union but we need to recognize that we always will be fragile as as a species mm -hmm. and uh, and accepting the the duality of being a species that is also not an animal mm -hmm. of of seeing things as the harm that something physical and something psychological can do to us yeah I think I think that's a perfect note to end on, really. Yeah. <laughs> that ultimately these horrors can affect us all. Yeah. And although I don't think war isn't our everyday lives, yeah, it's not work always, but war is hell, and work is hell. So these are possibilities for the Red Crown. Yeah. Even if one is vastly more devastating in the short term yeah. than the other. So yeah, I I think I think this I I, I I'm still sort of off. I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. I think Bruno can notice that I'm not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but me neither. Yeah, the, the, this discussion has sort of flown, yeah. but it was very. It's interesting to think about, and I, I think you really hit the nail on the head on the fragility. I think that yeah. to reflect on that and to especially the necessity of us being together. I think that can be one of the weaknesses of the narrator. He's alone. Yeah. And he handles it all alone. Yeah. As such, there can never be any sort of recovery for him. Exactly. Because he's alone. Yeah. And one cannot face these traumas, these horrors alone. Perfect. So yeah, I think I think that's enough yeah. for now. <laughs> I wow. <laughs> yeah. Very strange episode. Yeah. But but an interesting one and a good one too. It's good too. To go back to these works that are very particular to their own times, I think I think the Red Crown really reflects this era of violence, of the First World War, the Russian Revolution, and the Russian Civil War, and war in general yeah. in the 20th century. But it also helps us think about what this violence means to the wars today, and to the other violences we suffer every day. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, we can find us on Twitter at, at leftpagepod. We are on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the left page. Uh, we can, you can find us there. We, we launched, I think, yeah, two weeks ago, we launched our first, our April Patreon episode, yeah. which was also a for, sort of test for the poetry club, yeah. which is an interesting thing and it's <laughs> something fun to do. Yeah. So if, you, if, you, if you'd like to support us and support the show, please look at that. And yeah, we'll, we'll be back to you soon. We have we have the collab coming up on yeah. Dispossessed. That is... Yeah. I'm super excited! <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. And along with that, we have some other interesting things planned. I... Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be great. It's gonna yeah, be great. Yeah, yeah. 
So thank you a lot for listening to us, for understanding my English that was not particularly really good today, but <laughs> there's, I, I think that you guys will be able to understand what I was, I was trying to talk about. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Till the next one. Song for the sin.